Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I've been thinking a lot about the phrase thank you lately. In fact, you know thank you, right? We say it all the time. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Thank you. We say thank you pretty much every chance we can get. If someone holds the door for us, we say thank you. When we respond to someone's email, we start out by saying thank you for your email. Or if we really want to sound hip, Many thanks for your email. Obviously, when someone serves us a cup of coffee or helps us with directions, we say, thank you. Why do we bother saying thank you? This is not a trivial question, actually. The way I see it, there are three reasons why we say thank you. The first is that perhaps we care what others think of us, and we don't want someone else to think that we are a jerk. The second reason is that perhaps we genuinely want the other person to understand that we are grateful for whatever they did. But the third reason is the most interesting. We say thank you because we feel that we have received a benefit and we should somehow acknowledge this. We understand that we have received something we didn't necessarily deserve. When someone holds the door for us, we realize that this person could have just as easily not held the door. Because of this undeserved accession to a kind of wealth, no matter how small, we say thank you. Not just to the other person, but in a way, to the universe. The Parsha for this week, Tzav, is more or less entirely devoted to making sacrifices to God. When we read these passages as moderns, it seems rather foreign to us indeed. It goes without saying that we don't bring animals or bread or incense to the temple anymore, to be burned up in homage to God. Yet, I would argue that these sacrifices are not as removed from our world as we might think. Each time we say thank you, it is as though we are making a kind of mini-sacrifice. But this is true only if we are saying thank you for the third reason, as a kind of acknowledgement of a benefit we have received. It doesn't count if we say it for the first two reasons, because we want the other person to like us or the other person to feel good. While there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting other people to like us, or with wanting to make others feel good, this type of thanking has nothing to do with sacrifice. The Torah's laws about making sacrifices to God were not written in a vacuum. Rather, the Torah's stance on sacrifices is also a kind of reaction against barbaric sacrifices, namely human sacrifices. This is a major theme of the Torah. We, the Hebrews, are going to move beyond our heathen neighbors. We are not going to engage anymore in the barbarity of human sacrifices. We are going to make our sacrifices more beautiful, enlightened, elevating. The Parsha of Sav is intimately tied with the Parsha of Vayera from the book of Genesis, Bereshit. 
In this earlier parsha of Vayera, there's a section known as the Akedah. In the Akedah, God instructs Abraham to, to sacrifice his one and only son Isaac so that Abraham can show his faith and devotion to God. This is the same son which Abraham's wife, Sarah, had in her old age and which Abraham cherished more than anything in the world. Yet, Abraham agrees to sacrifice Isaac without dispute or objection. On the way up the mountain, Isaac asks his father all sorts of innocent questions. Where is the lamb that we will sacrifice, Dad? I see the stone, I see the wood, but the one thing I don't see is the lamb. Where's the lamb? Little does Isaac know that he is to be the lamb. They get to the top of the mountain. Abraham binds his son and pulls up the knife to stab his son Isaac to death and sacrifice. Yet, at the last moment, an angel appears. The angel screams to Abraham, don't do it. Now I know your faith is absolute. Sacrifice this goat instead. When we as moderns read this story, we can't help but think to ourselves, why would Abraham so readily agree to murder his own son just to please God? Why would God ask this of him? Why didn't Abraham protest? Yet, we only ask these questions because we are moderns. In the ancient world, human sacrifices were all too common. For many ancient cultures, human sacrifices was seen as the most dependable means of appeasing the gods. The sacrifice of a human life was worth more than the sacrifice of a mere animal, certainly worth more than just saying thank you. And so, when an ancient people really wanted something from the heavens, they killed a fellow human in a ceremonial ritual. In ancient Japan and the ancient Balkans, for example, virgin women were buried alive in order to protect buildings against disaster or enemy attacks. As late as 1487, the Aztecs wanted to reconsecrate a pyramid in what is now Mexico City. Over the course of four days, they killed between 10,000 and 80,000 prisoners as part of the ceremony and sacrifice to the pagan gods. In Greek myth, we read of Iphigenia and her father Agamemnon. Agamemnon wished to sacrifice his own daughter Iphigenia in order to appease Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, so that the Greeks could win the Trojan War. After Abraham's aborted attempt to sacrifice Isaac, we never hear about human sacrifice again in the Torah. A significant portion of the remainder of the Torah is, instead, devoted to making animal sacrifices to God. After the Akedah, we basically understand that human sacrifices are no longer on the table, as it were. It's verboten in Judaism. It's over, finished. All of the energy is instead turned toward making animal sacrifices. What is going on here? The Torah is taking a stand which was way ahead of its time. It is saying human sacrifices are horrific, terrible, inhumane, ungodly. Stop doing them now. But the Torah does not say that sacrifice itself is horrible. Rather, it is the way in which we choose to sacrifice which must come under scrutiny. In short, the Torah sets up a dichotomy, a division between sacrifices. There is a right way to sacrifice and a wrong way. Sacrificing humans is the wrong way. But what is the right way? In the Parsha for this week, Tzav, we get a kind of behind-the-scenes look at how Judaism sacrificed to God. 
The Torah wanted these moments of sacrifice to be as majestic, loving, pure, and beautiful as possible. The Torah wants to say, sure, sacrifice, but do so in a way that elevates you. Let's read an excerpt from Tzav. This is Leviticus, chapter 8, verses 26 to 29. Quote, From the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, Moses took one cake of unleavened bread, one cake of oiled bread, and one wafer, and placed them on the fat parts and on the right thigh of the ram. He placed all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons, and elevated them as an elevation before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and turned them into smoke on the altar with the burnt offering. This is an ordination offering for a pleasing odor. It was an offering by fire to the Lord. Moses took the breast and elevated it as an elevation offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination." Unquote. This sacrifice of the ram, a ram is a male goat, by the way, to God, is clearly intended to be edifying, sanctifying, uplifting. The word elevate appears over and over again in this excerpt. The sacrifice is highly ritualistic, in which the actors gallantly perform their roles. There is fire, pleasing scents, and delicious bread. The Torah is, again, being ironic here. Cicero famously wants to find irony as, when you say something which means something else, in Sav, the point is not just to teach the Israelites how to properly sacrifice to God. There is also another point which the Torah does not state explicitly, but which is implied and hinted at throughout. The Torah's other point is to contrast this form of sacrifice with the pagan sacrifices going on at that time throughout the ancient world. We can only imagine how revolting and disgusting and grotesque these sacrifices were when juxtaposed with the sacrifices of Moses and Aaron. These pagan sacrifices were often human and child sacrifices, which tended to be bloody and gory affairs. Most significantly, ancient Egypt, where the Hebrews had just escaped from, was notorious for human sacrifices made to the gods. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Israelite sacrifices were like looking at Monet's water lilies paintings. After all, there was an animal being slaughtered. And the social cause, which is by far the most near and dear to my heart, is that of animal rights and animal welfare. So I'm not exactly pleased when I read these passages about Moses and Aaron cutting up a goat as a sacrifice. Yet, we should remember first that in the ancient world, vegetarianism and veganism simply did not exist. Second, for the last 2000 years, Judaism has abolished animal sacrifice from its religion. It has been replaced instead by prayer, an even more enlightened and humane form of sacrifice. But leaving that aside, I would argue that, compared to our society, 
the Israelite sacrifice of the ram is far more compassionate. Today, the animals that are consumed are treated as objects to be exploited for maximum profit. The factory farm conditions in which they live are atrocious. I will spare you the nauseating details here, but let's just say that Moses and Aaron do not place their hands on the animals' heads and lovingly bless them before they are killed in factory farms. Indeed, in our society, the consumer has no contact or interaction or even awareness of these animals until they arrive on their plates. In the time of Moses and Aaron, while the animal was killed, it was done so in a way which dignified the animal and allowed for compassion and empathy with the animal. It is often the case that the way we treat others, including animals, is how we feel about ourselves. A society which exploits and commoditizes animals tends to treat humans as well as commodities. The ancient Israel society, in, in its acknowledgement and elevation of the animal, sent the message that humans, too, should be so acknowledged and elevated. Returning to the matter at hand, we can surmise from Sav that there is a right way, an ennobling way to sacrifice, and a wrong way, a degrading way. Franz Kafka's 1912 novella, The Metamorphosis, is also grappling with the question of sacrifice. In Kafka's famous story, Gregor Samsa wakes up one morning to find himself transformed into a giant insect. Throughout the remainder of the story, Gregor must figure out how to now cope with life, not as a human, but as a giant cockroach. He does his best, but after a while, he becomes too burdensome for his family. One evening, his father, frustrated by the cockroach state of his son, throws apples at Gregor. These apples wound Gregor, and his body is badly injured. A few days later, Gregor dies from these wounds. His corpse is then swept up and disposed of. The happy family had been Gregor, his sister Greta, and his mother, Frau Samsa, and his father, Herr Samsa. Now, of course, the family has been reduced down to three, the mom, the dad, and the sister. But because Gregor is now dead and no longer a burden, the family decides to go for a Sunday stroll in a kind of celebration of mutual relief. When the story began, Greta was characterized as Gregor's little sister, a kind of child. Yet now, as the mother and father travel on an electronic tram through the town together, they see their daughter Greta anew. She has become a young woman. And the parents, Herr and Frau Samza, looking at their daughter's young and healthy body, decide that it is time to marry her off. This is how the metamorphosis ends. Here is how the final sentence reads, quote, Despite all that had occurred in recent times, Frau and Herr Samza noticed that their daughter was blooming into a be beautiful and voluptuous young woman. The parents exchanged gazes and unconsciously knew that it was now time to find a good man for her. And it was like a confirmation of their new dreams and good intentions that when the tram reached its destination, the daughter raised herself up and stretched out her young body." Unquote. The metamorphosis begins then with Gregor's descent from man into bug and ends with the daughter's ascent from girl into marriageable woman. But let's take a moment to think about the backstory of the metamorphosis. Who had Gregor been before he was the cockroach? What is Gregor Samsa's backstory? 
Gregor had been a traveling salesman, and this was not an easy job. He used to wake up at 4 a.m. in order to catch the train at 5. He lives in a kind of perennial fear of his boss. He often must sleep in small hotel rooms on the road with, quote, moist, unquote, bedsheets. Why did Gregor take this oppressive job? He took it because he wanted to support his family. His father's business had collapsed five years before, and so Gregor took a job in order to pay for his family's expenses. Yet his, his parents barely expressed gratitude to Gregor for all the support and sacrifice he was making. And moreover, after Gregor becomes a bug, it is discovered that the father still had money left over from his business that had collapsed. Gregor's slave-like attitude toward his job can be witnessed in his first thoughts following his transformation into a bug. His first thought is not to reflect on how he has become a bug. Rather, his first concern is how he will still be able to make the train, still be able to work, still be able to earn money for his parents and sister. The opening sentence to the Metamorphosis reads, One morning, Gregor Samsa awoke from disturbing dreams to find that he had been transformed into a monstrous insect. But we need to look at the phrase monstrous insect in its original German. The words are ungeheuren ungezifa. This word ungezifa does not exactly translate perfectly into English. It can mean pest, insect, bug, or even vermin. What is vermin? According to the dictionary, vermin are, quote, noxious, objectionable, or disgusting animals, unquote. But in German, the word has additional connotations. An ungeziefe was also the word used for an unclean animal, unfit to be slaughtered. An ungeziefe would have been strictly forbidden by the Torah as an animal which could be sacrificed. I would argue that, in a certain sense, there are two sacrifices going on in Kafka's The Metamorphosis. In a sense, the family has sacrificed their son, Gregor. They have pressured him to working an exhausting, soul-sucking job in order to pay for all their expenses. This sacrifice has not been elevating, but rather devitalizing and depleting. It does not allow their son, Gregor, to thrive in the world, but rather to slowly expire. This is an unhealthy and sickening sacrifice. This is, we might say, an unkosher sacrifice. And the depravity of this type of sacrifice is depicted within the bug which Gregor transforms into. Gregor has become an ungezifa, a vermin, an animal whose sacrifice would be degenerate. The sacrifice of Gregor is like the human sacrifices and other ungodly sacrifices which the Torah wishes to make us repulsed by. These sacrifices do not elevate a society, but rather degrade a society. The sacrifice of Gregor, by forcing him to work this slavish job, did not bring energy and enlightenment to the family, but rather a kind of degeneration. At the end of the metamorphosis, the parents turn their attention to their next child, their daughter Greta, as their next source of sacrifice. The closing to the metamorphosis tells of how the parents exchanged glances and knew it was time to marry off their coming-of-age daughter. But the depiction of Greta is, in many ways, the opposite of that of Gregor. Gregor represented decay, overwork, and uncleanliness. When we meet Gregor, 
he is quite literally an exhausted beetle. The sister, by contrast, is depicted as vibrant and vivacious before she will be sacrificed. The text describes her blooming and as a maiden, therefore as regenerative and innocent. Unlike Gregor's brittle bug body, Greta, we read, rises from the tram and stretches out her young body. Greta, then, is the clean and holy animal to be sacrificed, the sacrifice which will not disgrace the family, but will presumably enliven the family and enrich the family. Why is the parent's sacrifice of Greta different from the sacrifice of Gregor? Because with Gregor, the parents sent him off to work a grueling and wearying job which would slowly kill him. Gregor's job would not enable him to marry and have children, but rather to ensure that he would remain a miserable bachelor. The sacrifice of Greta, by contrast, is a sacrifice which will allow Greta to expand and to multiply her existence. Even though she will be given to a man, this marriage will not diminish her, but will presumably magnify her, as she and her husband have children raise a family. Now, I recognize that it is possible to view Greta's eventual marriage also as a negative sacrifice. Perhaps the parents are committing the same sin now twice. If she gets married, she will no longer be able to fulfill her personal dreams. She had wanted to become a famous musician, but instead will be saddled with a household to manage. After all, in those days, marriage usually meant the end of a woman's personal freedom and dreams. Perhaps Kafka wishes to say that both Gregor and Greta are negative sacrifices. But, assuming that Greta wants to get married and will have a happy and fruitful marriage, then, at least on the surface level, this seems to be an example of a positive, life-bringing sacrifice. There's not enough evidence in the text to suggest that Greta's sacrifice is also an unhealthy sacrifice and that she will one day end up as lifeless as Gregor. The Torah and the Metamorphosis, then, are perhaps both saying the same thing. There are two types of sacrifices. There are sacrifices which bring us down and degrade us, and then there are sacrifices which elevate us. As I've mentioned in several previous episodes, Western culture has inherited the culture of Puritan Christians. Within Puritanical Christianity, there is a belief that this world is supposed to be filled with hardship and suffering and pain, and that the next world, the afterlife, is where we will be recompensed and rewarded for this suffering. Even if we are not Christian and have different conceptions of the afterlife, the culture of Puritan Christianity has still left its mark on us. Its effects have been wide-ranging and significant. There still seems to be this misguided belief that, if we suffer, if we make our lives miserable and ugly, then we will be rewarded for it later. I will give a short anecdote here. I remember when I was in law school, we had final exams coming up. All of the students were quite nervous about them. I remember speaking with one student. She told me, I love exercising and working out, but I decided that I'm not gonna work out at all until after the exams are over. Meanwhile, the exams were still six weeks away. On one hand, perhaps she just wanted to be strategic and save time so she could study. But on the other hand, I wonder if, subconsciously, she thought that the more she suffered and was miserable in the time leading up to the exam, the better grade she would get. In many ways, we still have this conception that if we are enjoying ourselves and thriving, that it's somehow unfair or unjust if this leads to more success. It is as though we don't deserve to be rewarded for enjoying life. 
the Torah and the metamorphosis wish to express to us that we should avoid those sacrifices which decrease us and to lean into those sacrifices which regenerate us and allow us to thrive. When we say thank you, it represents a kind of mini-sacrifice. For a moment, we give something up, our time, our breath, in acknowledgement of our fortune in life. But even though we give something up when we say thank you, this process actually enriches us. Paradoxically, saying thank you and expressing gratitude is a giving up which allows us to receive back tenfold whatever we gave. But like any sacrifice, it can sometimes be difficult to be grateful and appreciative. When you are dealing with a problem or have stress, it's hard to take a step back and say, thank you that I have running water or electricity or a roof over my head. It's our nature to take these things for granted. And so it can almost be a struggle to say and express gratitude for these basic gifts. And yet, once you make that sacrifice, once you say that thank you, you immediately feel better and stronger. In my case, before I sit down to eat, I like to express things in life for which I am grateful. If I'm very hungry and the food is sitting right in front of me, then this can really feel like a sacrifice, as all I want to do at this moment is eat rather than list things that I'm thankful for. But by taking the time to express gratitude, the energy I give up immediately comes back in multitudes. Gratitude meditations are an extremely powerful practice to bring, ironically, more prosperity into your life. In addition to the commandments on sacrificing, the Torah also has a law regarding fire. In chapter 6, verse 13, the Torah reads that, The perpetual fire shall be kept burning on the altar in the temple, not to go out. Esh tamid tokad al mizbech lo Fire is one of the few things in nature which, when it gives, does not subtract from itself, but rather expands. When fire takes in energy, it glows and brightens and dances. In the Hebrew temple, this fire was always lit, was always kept burning. This eternal fire is the symbol and metaphor for our, how our sacrifices should be. Each time we give something of ourselves, we should not feel ourselves diminished, but rather more vibrant, more radiant. Take me out tonight Where there's music and there's people and the young and the light Driving in your car I never, never want to go home Because I haven't got one anymore Take me out because I want to see people and I want to see light Driving in your car Oh, please don't drop me home Because it's not my home, it's their home and I'm welcome no more If a double-decker bus crashes into us To die by your side is such a heavenly way to die And if it's
then a strange fear gripped me and I just couldn't ask Take me out tonight Oh, take me